It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. And the pitch is swung on, hit the right field, hit deep. Whitefield going back at the track over his head and over the wall. Do you believe that? And 29 other MLB clubs. Ramirez with a drive to deep right, away back, goal! Oh, hey, it's a bomb out there by the Rocks. And boy, oh boy, this third inning is now showtime. It is a judgy in blast. All rise. Here comes the judge. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe, from humidors to spin rates to game-changing moments. We have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to A's Cast Live as the Oakland Athletics are going to be taking on the New York Yankees here on a Friday night. And we are in the treehouse. It's happy hour time. People are going to be rolling in about 4.30. So we'll have drink specials. We'll have games. It's the best party in all of Major League Baseball right here. The treehouse outside. We're going to have the DJ going does not get any better than Friday nights here at the Coliseum. What a matchup tonight. Garrett Cole against former Yankee J.P. Sears. His numbers, by the way, are just off the charts. You think about him as a starter. J.P. Sears has started his career 5-0 with a 1.93 ERA. But as a starter, he's got a 1.04. That counts for the Yankees and the athletics, so he actually has been dominant. His secondary pitches you're going to hear a lot about. As we'll talk about here, I'll bring it up on uh, A's Total Access also for our stat of the day brought to you by by Mechanics Bank as 0.80 on his secondary pitches. That's his slider and his curveball. I mean, his slider and his changeup. I mean, just unreal. I mean, this kid, his start has been beautiful. And how he will pitch against his former team, as yesterday we saw the entire New York media surround him. You normally think for J.P. Sears, but this is New York. They make a big deal out of it. And not only did the entire New York media that has traveled with the Yankees here to the Coliseum do a scrum with them, they all wanted a one-on-one with him. You talk about how different certain markets are. Uh, We got a great show for you today. You are who? I am David Feldman. He is going to be on right now. We're going to have the great Billy Bean at 430 to talk about the 2002 team who we are celebrating this weekend. We now have an Eno Saris show. The columnist for The Athletic is now going to join us every single weekend this will be his first show, and we're going to have him throughout the season, the offseason. Can't wait to have him every single week. When you talk about data and crunching numbers in our game, not many people better than Eno Saris. Uh, and then we're going to have Mark Kotze, the Mark Kotze show, as we do every single Friday. But one of the reasons, normally we do our top tens with you, Feldy, but today we're talking about 
the 0-2 team, and specifically the 20-game winning streak. You are one of only two non-A's employee, personnel, however you like to talk about it. A guy who wasn't getting paid by the A's <laughs> is the most simple way. Who was here for all 20 games? Just yeah. you and the great Ray Fossey. Yeah, all 20 games. I was working with uh, A's television at the time, uh, KICU on the broadcast side. It was Fox Sports Bay Area on the cable side. And uh, I was all, well, I was at every game that season. I was at every game for five straight seasons, but every game of the streak. And uh, so I saw it all. And it was uh, – you know, it's 20 years ago, and it's still as fresh as, uh, as yesterday. You know, we were talking to Billy Bean earlier today, and like I said, you're going to see it at 4.30 about it. And, you know, for the streak, we remember it as A's fans. I was at KMBR at the time working on the morning show, and we remember how great it was, but Billy kind of put you back into reality going, listen, the Angels were winning every night too, so – you know, as a, as a general manager at the time and back when Billy was you know, a younger GM doing everything he can to win every single game and he's gripping everything, you couldn't really sit back and enjoy it because you weren't gaining the ground you normally would in a streak like that. Yeah, that's the amazing thing about that year, right? You look at the 2002 year, and we've seen the movie about it, um, and they got off to a tough start. I mean, they, again, no Jason Giambi, no Johnny Damon, no Jason Isringhausen. So they brought new players in. And it takes a while to jut, to gel. And this team didn't really gel the first two months. And they, got, they had a terrible road trip. They went one and six, got swept in Toronto, long flight home. Uh, flight home, there was stuff that went on on the plane. We get back to the ballpark on Monday, and it was like dark Monday. Right? Frank Minichino set out. Yeah. Jeff Tam set out. Carlos Pena, the guy you traded to be your first baseman. Not like in the movie. Hatterberg wasn't going to be the first baseman right away what? there. What? I know, I know. It's easy to play first <laughs> base. I saw the movie. <laughs> saw the, so Carlos Pena was your first base. He sent out. Right? And the next day they trade Jeremy Giambi. And it was just cleaning house. But it worked. Right? This, this team, they were 10 games out at one point, And then they get to play the National League Central. They played the Giants and also the National League Central. They went 16-1. and one. Yeah. They have a 16-1 and one stretch that gets them four games out of first place. That's how far back they were to get 16-1. and one. And even when they start the 20-game win streak, they're still four and a half games back in third place when the streak started. So there was nothing like this streak. Hattie Burke gets the home run. They win the division. Everybody's happy. You know what? They win the 20th game. They go to Minnesota. They lose the Friday night game. But then they win Saturday, Sunday, and Monday in Anaheim. So it's 23-1 they go. But again, they lose the next three games in Anaheim, and they're a game out. With nine games, to, with 11 games to go, they're tied for the division lead. Right? So this was no cakewalk. And for the A's, yeah, they were going to make the playoff. They were going to be the one wild card team. But if they had been the wild card team, they would have played the Yankees again. And we knew what happened in 2000, 2001. The A's wanted no part of the Yankees. They needed to win the division to make sure they avoided the Yankees. Now, in hindsight, maybe it would have been different. But at the time, <laughs> you didn't want to play the Yankees. So you wanted to win the division. They go 9-2 and two down the stretch to win the division. But, it, yeah, every game was a grind because the Angels refused to lose. Yeah, the very just the very start wasn't that bad. They were a little over five hundred. Then they went in the tank. Yeah. And then as you said, sixteen and one. Sixteen that and one. Run, there was always something 
about interleague play. With that era of A's teams, there was always, and you could say, when you're constantly switching up players every year, it takes time to gel, figure out how to play together and everything. But there was something about as soon as they saw the National League, it didn't matter if it was the West, Central, or East, things would change with interleague play. They really did. And they went 3-0 and against Houston, 3-0 and against Milwaukee, took two out of three from the Giants. Then they go on the road. And they take three straight in Cincinnati. I don't think I've ever told you this story. The A's are in Cincinnati, and I actually got a game ball for an A's victory. You got the A's in did. Cincinnati? In Cincinnati. By the well, way, was that, was that still Riverfront? It was still Riverfront. It was the last oh year of Riverfront. God. So we could see the new ballpark being built just over left field, yeah. left center field. There it is. But so Art Howe was making the A's lineup up, and he had John Mabry on the bench because he had – if he had played Mabry, he would have had four straight left-handers in the lineup, and he knew the Reds only had one left-handed reliever, but he wanted to break it up. Somehow, I don't know how, I heard that Gabe White, the Reds' left-handed reliever, was unavailable that day. And I told Art. I said, Art. This is inside info. You could get investigated <laughs> for this kind of stuff. I don't. I still remember how I heard. I said, Art, I, they don't have their left-hander today. And he looks at me, and he goes, really? He goes, maybe I'll change the lineup. So he puts Mabry in. What does Mabry do? Hits a game-winning homer in the seventh inning. After the game, he says, I think we'll give the game ball to Mr. Feldman. You still have that? Uh, he never actually gave me a ball. But I have the newspaper <laughs> article, so that's, that's sort of close. I always thought I should have gotten a playoff share. I, you, you know what? You know what I'm thinking? I'm going to go get a ball. Art's going to be here <laughs> for right. the celebration. Hey, Art, you owe me. <laughs> you may not remember or care. You owe me a sign ball for the, the game ball for that game. <laughs> the game ball in Cincinnati. So they end up, they sweep that series. They go to Pittsburgh, they sweep that series. And they're, they're just rolling. They really picked up steam. The other thing that happened on that road trip, and this is something I'll never forget as well, was when we were in Pittsburgh. Uh, again, New players. Takes time to gel. And David Justice was one of those new players. And Justice comes in. He's, he's kind of a celebrity, right? Married to Halle Berry. Yeah, the Atlanta, the championship, playing in New York. Now, there is a scene where, nah, man, Yankees <laughs> are paying half your salary to play against you. It's true. But, <laughs> but I remember we're in the lobby in Pittsburgh, and they have the night off, so they're going to go to dinner. And David Justice and Jermaine Dye made sure every player on the team was invited to dinner. Not one player left out. They said, we're going and we're all going. And, you know, this was in June. And that's kind of how long it took for this team to really find themselves and get to know each other, these new players, new personalities. And, but that night solidified it for me. It was like, wow, that's what leaders do, for one. They make sure everybody yeah. is included and it pays off. Well, there is no doubt. I mean, Dave Justice was a star. Yeah. I mean, for his time, you know, he's he's one of the most recognizable faces. Too many times we think of stats with stars. Stars are bigger than stats. That's why they're stars. Right. They're star players stat-wise. But as you mentioned, when you're married to one of, at that time, most popular actresses. You've been in all these playoff games. I mean, ever since he, would he come at 19? Yeah, with the Braves. He was very young. 18 or 19. He was super young when he came up because he signed early. And his entire career was in the postseason. Yeah. So there's something, too, when Dave Justice came to the A's. It was, and it was this celebrity. Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't going to have the offensive output that Jason Giambi was going to have, but he has some cachet. He's still yeah. David Justice. 
And the other thing that gets kind of lost in this whole year is the A's made a big acquisition at the end of July, and that was Ray Durham. And you think, why did the A's even get Ray Durham? Mark Ellis was a rookie, but he was playing second base and doing a great job. But, again, it just solidified a leadoff hitter. Ray Durham was the A's leadoff hitter, and DH didn't really play second. It was all Mark Ellis. But now all of a sudden you had Ray Durham leading off, Scott Hattieberg batting second, playing first base again, and the lineup is just now set. Right? It's just Tejada and Chavez and Justice and Terrence Long, uh, Ramon. It's just now you have a set lineup going down the stretch. And it, it, getting Ray Durham, it, just, it was like the final piece. They needed that player. And you look at his numbers again, they won't blow you away for what he did with the A's. He hit 270, hit a couple home runs. Wait, wait, wait. Hold yeah, on. I know. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. I'm going to look up at a scoreboard tonight. I'm assuming – I haven't seen the lineups, but I'm assuming Aaron Judge is going to be in the lineup tonight, yeah. right? Aaron Judge at one point last night was hitting 298. Um, you're telling me a leadoff guy – now, Ben Attendee's hitting over 300. But you're going to see where I'm going here, folks. We're going to look up at a scoreboard tonight and see everybody's basically under 240. Yeah. You're going to tell me the A's had a leadoff hitter hitting 270. That's a, that, that, that was real? It was real, and it was kind of disappointing that Ray Durham was a 300 hitter, and he was hitting 270. Uh, Can you imagine now we'd be talking about him battling for the, for the batting title? Exactly. But he, you know, he did what they needed him to do, steal bases, yeah. play big games. You know, he hit a couple homers in the postseason, had the inside-the-park homer And in the Minnesota. White Sox, the White Sox, remember when they got him from the White Sox, why, that was – White Sox had a good, good, good time during – they were good. They had some good teams. It was a good team. You know, the Giants end up signing Ray Durham. He yeah. played there for a long time, had some big years. But, again, Billy, and I've always felt this, when the A's are in that situation where they have a chance to win, he's so good at picking those pieces that are going to really help you. Right? He knows what's going to help this team, him and David Force both. We saw it last year with getting Starley Marte and, and uh, Gomes and uh, Chafin and, and Harrison – these were the players the A's needed. Now, it didn't work out for, for, for other reasons, not because those guys failed. They were the perfect additions to this team. And Ray Durham in 2002, along with Ricardo Rincon, right? the A's knew they needed a left-handed reliever. Mike McNanny wasn't getting it done anymore. They needed to bolster it. And they said, you know what? Ricardo Rincon, well, he's across the hall. Let's get him. And, and that scene in the movie of all the scenes was pretty much the closest to what really happened. We're kind of playing phone tag and getting people involved and, and working the magics on the phone. That was pretty close to reality of what that night was like. Yeah, and he was literally right down the hall. Right down the hall. Magnate, by the way, wasn't he at, almost at the ten-year, the golden? Oh, that was a that's that was a rough tough. conversation. It was rough, and, and and you know, Magnate, he put his heart and soul into it out there. You saw the knee braces in the movie again. Reality, he yeah. pitched with knee braces, um, and he gave it his all. He just had, didn't have anything left. You know, having read the book Moneyball and watched the movie Moneyball, obviously, you know, they didn't have any pitching. And <laughs> that's how that team won with was I don't even think did they have pitchers cuz I don't they don't even mention pitching in the book. So I don't even were they allowed to have pitchers in 2002? Well, now Chad Bradford got a whole chapter. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes. Cuz he's coming from he's down coming under. He's coming from down here. No, I you know, it's funny. The first time I saw the movie Moneyball, it was so hard for me not to watch it like a documentary. I lived this. I was with these guys every day. And I'm like, well, that's in heaven. This is terrible. And then I went and saw it a second time, and I watched it as a movie. It's entertainment. And you go, yeah. this is a really good movie. Right. This is really entertaining. It was up for an Oscar, by the way, folks, <laughs> the movie. And it's a best-selling book even to this day. You know, and, it's just, and you go, well, they didn't mention Hudson Mulder Zito. 
Well, it wasn't about that. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about Tejada or Chavez. So you've got to kind of say that to yourself. It's not about those guys. This is what it's about. It's about doing more with less and finding, you know, those, those hidden gems and whatnot. But, yeah, they had some pitching, right? They had Mulder, Hudson, and Zito and Corey Lytle. And during the streak, Corey Lytle was the best of them all, 32 straight scoreless innings. And we're talking tonight, game th- 13 is the anniversary. He gave up a run in game 13. It was unearned because David Justice sort of lost a ball in the lights. It could have been ruled. In today's game, it probably been ruled a hit. But it called it an error. Run still scored, unearned run. But Corey Lytle, unbelievable run. So now you have Mulder, Hudson, Zito. And Corey Lytle, who's dealing. Aaron Harang was the fifth starter, and he was okay. He kept you in games. But those top four during the streak, money. So Billy Bean is going to tell you coming up here at 4.30, right? At 4.30, there was a game that Corey Lytle pitched against the Athletics as a – they would have been the devil rays at, yeah. at the time. And after that game, he was obsessed with him and getting him. You're going to hear that at, at, at 4.30 when we talk about this. But, yes, you know, Corey was just dominant. And that's how you can go 16-1. and one. That's how you can win 20 in a row is as much as we talk mainly about offense, guys feeding off of each other, good and bad, right? Lineups get hot and cold together. So do staffs that all of a sudden everybody starts winning. Everybody actually pitches innings, which is something we don't see anymore. But, you know, if – if one guy goes eight and wins, I want to go eight or close it, and they start feeding off of each other, and that's really how streaks – I mean, it's how Cleveland broke the record. Right. They won 22 in a row in the same sort of situation where guys got hot and everybody's playing together. The interesting thing about this streak as you know, they lose a game on a Monday night to Toronto by one run, and Terrence Long hit a leadoff triple in the eighth, and the A's couldn't score him. And it just felt like we're back to the bad A's again. Because, again, a little bit of up and down with this 2002 season. But the next 11 games, the first 11 games of the streak, the A's never trailed at the end of an inning. That's how easy it was, right? They just they were dominating. They never trailed. And finally, game 12 was the game in Detroit where they're down 7-2. to two. Uh, They pinch hit Greg Myers. He hits a home run leading off an inning, starts this rally. John Mabry again, huge hit. They come back and win. Uh, and then they go to Kansas City. And I'm sure Billy might have talked about this. They get to Kansas City, and now there's a threat of a strike. Yes. Right? There's going to be a strike. There's labor unrest. We don't know what's going to happen. So as the streak's going on, there's this whole other thing happening with the players, which is really overshadowing this A's winning streak because baseball might shut down by Friday. So they win Monday, they win, win Tuesday, they win the Wednesday night in Kansas City. Again, another great moment. They win their 15th in a row, set an Oakland record for consecutive wins, beating the uh, 14th straight by the 88 A's. Get in the clubhouse after the game. Everybody's excited. Eric Burns had caught the final out. Eric, where's the ball? Uh, I threw it into the stands. <laughs> Dude, we gotta, he goes, do you want me to go back and get it? What, what do you do? You're, who are you going to go back and get it from? But they had no idea if they were going to play on Friday. And that was the amazing thing. You won 15 in a row. You're in this, this pennant race, and you have no idea if you're playing on Friday. Thursday comes. It's an off day. Things get settled. Thank goodness they're playing Friday, and this place, the Coliseum's electric. Minnesota Twins are in town. Jock Jones for the Twins leads off with a home run. You're like, uh-oh. Ray Durham in the bottom of the inning leads off with a home run, and it's on. 
And that's just, you know, it's such a great homestand with the, with the Twins, the Sunday game, uh, Mulder's dealing. It looks like he's going to have a complete game shutout. Gives up back-to-back home runs. They take him out. Billy Koch come in. Who's Billy Koch pitched every day. He gives up a home run to Michael Kadire, and the A's are trailing. Go to the bottom of the inning, Miguel Tejada, off Eddie Gardado, three-run homer, walk-off winner. Now we go to Labor Day. This is a Monday afternoon game. The A's look dead. Looks like, you know, sometimes a day game after a day game is harder than a day game after a night game. For whatever well, these guys are these guys are not one to get up early in the morning. No, that's not their in spring training. Yes, but during the regular season, no, we're a night game. <laughs> we're night game. So day game after day game can be tough. And these are trailing five nothing to the Royals, and it looks like well, this is it. It's a good run. It's going to end at eighteen. And Renolvis Hernandez, the pitcher for the Royals, for whatever reason, buzzes Jermaine Die right at his head, right at his head. Die jumps back. You can see the A's dug. I was like, something clicked. Everybody woke up, and it's on. A's come roaring back. They win on walk-off fashion again. Miguel Tejada against Jason Grimsley. Remember that name. He's going to give up another big walk-off yeah. hit. <laughs> and the place is just nuts. So now you win. It's 19 in a row, and you have Tuesday off. Tuesday's an off day because the A's wanted to have a home game on Labor Day. So they have Tuesday off. We have to wait till Wednesday, Wednesday night to come back to try for game 20 against the Royals. And, you know, that game's pretty famous. They made a movie about it. You know, Miguel Tejada, we're hoping, is going to be here this weekend. Um, that's kind of like, you know, when he's here, he's here. Yeah. But he hasn't been back. Well, he's been back as a, as a player. Came back as a Royal. Oriole. Yeah. I mean, he's come back. But, I mean, Miguel Tejada coming back as Miguel Tejada – in Oakland This a. is a celebration of Miguel yeah, Tejada. Yeah, I mean, Miguel Tejada was a terrific Oakland A. Oh, he's I mean, fantastic. he's an MVP, for God's sakes. I think it's time, to get, it's, it's time for him to get his due. It is, and he deserves this. And he's, the numbers that he put up as shortstop, the, the, as coming up as a young player, making his debut in 97, you know, starting as a guy who batted eighth in the lineup, and it's him and Xavi right batting seventh and eighth, and they slowly move their way up in the lineup as people leave and they get better, and then they are just the dominant players. In 2002, Tejada was dominant. He was dominant offensively and defensively and in the clubhouse. He had a big personality. Um, and he, guys, they gravitated towards him. He was, you know, he's an interesting. He's a different cat. His English wasn't great, but he played with emotion. And I think the fans of Oakland really appreciated that. Well, and it was a situation where you kind of forgot about Giambi because you have a you have a different, you know, there's the, there's the guy. Giambi was the guy. He was the man. Was, I'll never forget – it was the day game. I'm in the press box. The old left-handed reliever for the Yankees. Mike on Stanton. Mike Stanton. He hits the home run off Stanton. I mean, Giambi was the guy. That was, no, it's the man. because That's the Bill Kings. Jason Giambi that, yeah, uh, is the man. Because I was sitting in. I was sitting with Bruce McGowan and I. We're sitting there, and it was like, oh, my God. Wait, did Bruce stop talking at any point during that day? Do you know back when the <laughs> Giants came here in 19? <laughs> um, I love you, We Bruce. love Bruce, yes. So... Tahadabi took over that role. Yeah. Someone had to take over the role as the dude, and 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 it's time. And I, I we think he's going to be here. When he's here, we'll know he's here. And it's time for him to get celebrated by his fans. Hundred percent. I mean, you know, Steve Schott in, in his new book that he wrote with yeah. with John Shea, they talk about the decision whether to sign Tahada, and they thought they they were going to embarrass him with an offer. And Steve Schott loved Miguel Tahada. Steve Schott's mom favorite player was Miguel Tejada. I mean, and truthfully, there was so much love there. 
And Steve Schott knew that he couldn't keep him. He knew it. And he didn't want to embarrass him with a low ball offer. And unfortunately, they, you know, they went with Eric Chavez. They gave Eric Chavez a very nice contract. Uh, still the biggest money contract in A's history, uh, $66 million. But Chavi didn't stay healthy through it. And Bad it didn't bat. pay off, right? So, and, you know, Tejada goes to Baltimore and has huge – drives in 150 runs in, in what, 2004. As the MVP wins a home run derby. Um, yeah, it's, it's a shame. But he needs to be honored for what he did with the A's because he was – so good, and again, just a turning point, a turning point player as part of this franchise. Now, I am going to test our A's historian. Uh-oh. This is a man that's done so much television, scorekeeping, what are all the things you've done around the A's? All that stuff. Yeah. All right, he's done all this stuff. That's why he's our A's historian, of course. Pac-12 Network, he'll be A-State, and who's your first oh, We got Northern Arizona and Arizona State on Thursday. Hey, Herm, you play to win the game. <laughs> the great Roxy Bernstein on the call. I am going to test your knowledge All right. of the streak. What is the most played highlight that happened during the 20-game streak? What highlight was played more than any other? I would imagine it was Scott Hatterberg's walk-off home run. Uh, not Tah- even close. Tahada's home run. Tahada's base hit. I have no idea then. I take you back to Cleveland. Jermaine Dye rips the ball over the left field wall. It bounces through because they have that gate-like. And the guy runs after it and face plants into the concrete. Ball keeps rolling. Guy tries to kick the ball, and it keeps rolling. And then the lady just picks it up down the street. That highlight is still played to this day. And if you remember back then, you're thinking maybe just locally. Back then, nationally, Sports Center played it over and over and over. It was like the highlight of the year because we didn't have MLB Network. All of our highlights came from ESPN. And that highlight <laughs> still gets played to it this does. day. You know, our esteemed A's producer, Delaire Lewis, he loves that highlight. And he'll play at any time Cleveland's in town. He'll play at any time Jermaine dies. See what I'm saying? He had it. He loves it, and it is it's hilarious because the guy just biffs it, and then the woman just picks up the ball and is like, "Hey, it's great." And he hit hard. Yo, and yeah. I've always wondered what happened to him. Yeah, I think a lot of dental work <laughs> is what happened to him because I don't want to see the aftermath. Oh man. And and and. Uh, I don't think you've been – you haven't been in the truck for any of these replay – any of the highlights of these games, have you? A few of them, sure. Did, were you – when the, we recently replayed it, were you in the truck? I was actually them? in the booth with Dallas and Glenn, and, and Dallas really had not seen it. Oh, it's – and I just I, – I, I can't – you can't stop laughing. It is it is funny. And, and, you know, hopefully 20 years later that guy's fine, new teeth and all. But it was uh, – it's so funny the first time you see it because it's just he, – it does. He goes down hard. He goes down like how the Raiders wanted the quarterback to go down. He must go down hard. Face first oh my the country. God. I feel so bad for him. Uh, great stuff. Yeah. I'm really excited about Sunday to see all these guys again. I mean, you talk about certain teams that you're attached to, and, and that era A's, that was, those were my guys. You know, I was, I was fortunate enough to travel with them and get to know them as even a little bit off the field. And uh, – you know, heartbreaking playoffs, but the regular seasons were unbelievable, and they were such a good, good group of, of, of people. We need to get that baseball signed by Art Howe. Yeah. We need to get that. We always appreciate the time. Uh, my pleasure, Tony. Great to be in the treehouse. Up next, the great Billy Bean. 
talking about the team he built in 2002 right here on A's Cast Live. The Coliseum has gone by many names, but none better than The Last Dive Bar. Hi, everyone. Ken Korak here, and my friends at Last Dive Bar are helping us celebrate our longtime home. Last Dive Bar has the most unique merchandise for all Oakland baseball fans. T-shirts, sweatshirts, the Ray Fossey line, and my personal favorite, the lights have taken full effect. Visit their website at lastdivebar.com or follow them on social media at Last Dive Bar. All proceeds are invested back into the A's Community Fund and their affiliated charities. Go to lastdivebar.com. That's Last Dive Bar. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. A's Cast Live continues from the town. Here's Chris Townsend. Joining us here on A's Cast Live, he's the executive vice president of baseball operations. The great Billy Bean is back with us. Billy, it's been a while. How are how are you? And how how's life with the family and everything? Uh, well, good. Uh, well, as the family's going good, just you, just like everybody else, uh, kids just back in school. Uh, it seems like summers are getting shorter and shorter uh, as I get older with the kids. But uh, you know, it's been a, a challenging year on the diamond, as you know. You've been there every night for us, Chris. So uh, you know, some good things and some things not so good. But uh, I think going into the season, we there were some. You know, we had some expectations that there was going to be some bumps along the road, but. Uh, Starting to see some good things, which is which is good, and uh, and listen, it's uh, uh, you know this is the trials and tribulations of putting together a team, and and uh, we've done it before, so uh, we'll get it on the right track. Yeah, I said this with David Force on the David Force show. If there's anything, you guys got street cred. You've done <laughs> this so many times that no one's sitting here flipping out, going, "Oh my God, we could be bad for 20 years like the Pirates were." I mean. You guys got that street cred where you've done this before. But the great thing about today's interview is we're not talking about baseball right now. We're talking about one of your favorite seasons, one of your favorite teams, a lot of people that you absolutely love. We're celebrating the 2002 Oakland Athletics. Of course, the book, the movie, all of that. But I want to get into the actual team and what that season was like, what baseball was like. And where you were in your career at that point. So when we look back, what was baseball like in 2002 for the athletics, for you, which is so far different than where we are now? Well, uh, a lot less gray hair. Uh, <laughs> I, I'll tell you what, you know, it was such an intense time for for the organization, myself personally. I mean, every day, I mean, it. Uh, again, and part of it was youth. You know, I was a very young guy. Uh, it was David was even younger. I think that was David's third year with us. His first year is 2000. Uh, so he was very young in his career. Paul DePodesta was still here. The old gang was, uh, was yeah. together. And, uh, uh, and again, just it, 20 years, it, it, it does seem like a long time ago. I mean, 20 years is a long time. Uh, I, I still have incredible memories. The one thing about obviously the, uh, the elephant in the room is, is that was the year that, you know, Michael used to write the book. And in some sense that 
team will always sort of continue to live on uh, in the memory of, you know, not just Ace fans, but even people who weren't necessarily Ace fans, because the book, even to this day, you know, credit to Michael, continues to have, uh, you know, uh, fans and, and readers, not just in the States, but around the world. It's funny, I was on the, I was on the phone uh, call from a, a gentleman who actually, he was in Mallorca, Spain. He, he lives in London. He's Italian. And uh, we were talking and I explained, I said, hey, I, I've got to get off. I'm doing an interview. And he goes, and, and he knew all about the team. He knew all about the book, despite the fact that he grew up in, in Italy. Uh, so, uh, again, you're, you're never going to forget. I, I won't. You know, th this team will always sort of go down and, you know, historically because of so many things, not just the streak. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. And it, the one thing and it was, before we were getting ready to speak, Chris, I sort of had to you know, think about myself, like what's the thing that I remember most about the streak, uh, not just the year, but the streak was all I remember was we won 20 games in a row and barely moved the needle on the angels behind us, which, you know, I, you asked me the question about, you know, where was I in my career? I mean, I, I didn't relax for one day because we still, we won 20 games and the idea that you could win 20 straight games and maybe not win the division was very much a possibility because the Angels were so good and were almost nearly as as hot as we were at that time. And so you never really got to enjoy every single win because there was uh, just so much need to win every game because the Angels were right on your your rear end. As, and as everybody know, that, that knows, that team was uh, very good and they went on to win the World Championship. That's how good they were. So uh, the 20 games, you think 20 games, you, you'd be in a great mood for 20 days, but you were just really on the edge of your seat because of you're looking over your shoulder the whole time. Uh, the other thing I remember about the streak, and we could talk about the whole season and some of the players, but um, uh, I, I, I knew when I, I almost knew 100%, I say that, you know, but that w when it was going to end, I, you know, we had had some miraculous finishes. Uh, I think Miggy had had a game-winning hit, I think, on a day game against Kansas City. Uh, in fact, a couple of games in that series, obviously, had his home run in the 20th game. And I think the Twins, I believe we had a – I think Miggy might have – did Miggy hit a homer against the Twins maybe in the weekend before? Just We were just having just incredible comebacks. But I remember we had – I think we, we won on a Wednesday. I believe the 20th game was on a Wednesday. We had, I think we had an off day. Uh, on a Thursday, and we were traveling, and we played Minnesota. And at that time, Minnesota was A, good. B, the Metrodome was arguably uh, one of the toughest places in sports to play at that time, playing in the Metrodome. And I think Radke was pitching against us. I think it was Brad Radke. I think I'm pretty sure that was the matchup. I'm not completely sure. But he just knew, like, wow, this is going to be really tough to beat these guys. We were sort of a little mentally exhausted from it. I say we, because I was too. Uh, but you kind of knew that that was going to be the night, and, and, it, and it was. But uh, but that team, I'm really looking forward to this weekend. You know, as many years as I've been here, we have a lot of you know weekend events with some of the you know the, you know teams of the past, which are wonderful. But I think of all the ones we've had, this is one that I'm looking forward to because I really love those guys in that team. And I sort of look back, and you know, you talk about where I was in my career. You know, now when I walk in the locker room. Uh, I'm I'm definitely a lot older than everybody in there, <laughs> so you know. And and I start thinking yeah. about I start thinking about the group now. And I was not that far. Some of the guys were older than I was. You know, we had guys on the team. I, I was that. I, I remember I was looking the other day on, on Doug Jones. You know, the late Doug Jones, unfortunately. Um, 
And when I, when he, I was the general manager, he was old, quite a few years older than me. Like you were in better, you were in better shape than some of those guys on the team. I, I, you know what? I think I worked out more than them. Mainly, that was sort of my stress relief. Was during the games, it's sort of common knowledge that I would work out huh. during the game. And and in fact, the twentieth game, I I must have put in six miles in the treadmill, and we were still only in the fourth inning, so I had a lot of energy still left in me. But uh, uh, but yeah, looking back, I was not that much older than a lot of the guys so i, I there was really a, a i had a real uh strong relationship with a number of the players and uh, particularly hattie you know scott who i'm still friends with he works for us now we we actually yeah so we're you know very you know very close and and i look back they're really a good bunch of guys and uh you know beyond being good baseball players and and the other thing too is that yeah that was the team that was coming off the oh the oh one team was an amazing team i still think the 2001 team, in my opinion, is the best team from pure just talent and balance that I, that I've ever had since I've been here over the years. And I really thought it was a team that was a deserving of a, a title. You know, it's one to me. It's one of those teams like you look at the Indians of the 90s that were one of the best teams for a long time that never won a title. I think that 2001 team sort of fits in that category because they didn't win the title. Nobody talked about them. Fast forward to 2002. I remember. When we got beaten uh, 2001, the night, we got home about three in the morning. And me and Paul DePodesta were watching everybody unload their bags at three in the morning after a tough loss to the Yankees in game uh, with game five. And I remember looking at Paul and just saying, and, and knowing that Johnny Damon was going to be gone, Jason was going to be gone, Jason Jambi, Isringhausen was going to be gone. And I just go, wow, we may never see a team like this. So we were starting 02 a little bit personnel wise in this huge hole i mean you win 101 games i think it was 102 or 101 games and you lose star players mvp caliber players you know is izzy was uh one of the best relievers in the game johnny damon you know uh is, you know enough said and so going into that season there, there were so many people who expected you know just a huge drop off and for them i think we ended up winning one more game when it was all said and done and we also, I think, and that was the year we also started pretty slow too. If you recall, yeah. we had a really slow start. Uh-huh. And, uh, and in we, June, actually, I think it was June. I mean, now you could have caught, you can kind of see why you guys had that streak of twenty games because it was like in June you rolled off something like fifteen out of sixteen or sixteen out of seventeen. So you'd had a streak before earlier in the season too that got you back from that slow start. Yeah, and, and if you recall, that was also the time we, and again, I'm uh, see if my memory's correct. We have we had a slow start, but we knew internally the team was good. It was just still a small sample size, but we knew with some of the stuff, the analytics that we're using, that our team was actually good. We just had, had a, some bad luck. That being said, we know in sports, no one sort of buys, you know, when the guy, hey, we're a good team, but we got a bad record. You just got to believe us, right? It just, it yeah. just, it doesn't fly. It doesn't fly with you. It doesn't fly with anybody. And we, I think we got back from Toronto and we were at our sort of low point, but we knew we were a good team. I mean, Paul and I knew like, hey, this is a good team. We're going to be fine. But it was also when we came back was when we had, I think like with, the, I think it was like a Black Monday where we made all these changes, you know, we moved guys out. And, and there was this belief that we had sort of created, you know, by virtue of our moves in the front office, that we had sort of made all the right moves that corrected the team. When in reality, we knew we were good. We, we sort of, the moves we made were more on the fringe, you know, 
it, it really didn't affect the core of the team. But but because there was a, few, a number of moves on that day, there was this idea that we made these genius moves. And in fact, the team was just really good. It just needed to be left alone. And the moves we made were more sort of a window dressing and, uh, and, 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 and looked good from the outside because the team started playing well, but it wasn't necessarily a result of those moves. That being said, I do think uh, one of the guys we brought in on that day, we brought into the team, we brought in John Mabry, I think was part of that because I think Jeremy left to Philly and I think Mabry came in. I want to say that was the, 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 about the same time and John was incredible for us. I mean, John had, you know, game winning hits and, uh, and and really just took off as soon as he got here and gave us a real jolt. So uh, but in, in reality, the team was really good. And, 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 you know, us leaving it alone, probably we would have still had a really good season and, you know, probably won the division. Yeah, we just had John on when he came in with Kansas City on the coaching staff and talked about, oh, that was like the greatest year of my career. And like, oh, it was a it was a special time. And, and we're we're holding out hope. We know it may be a possibility that Miguel Tejada could show up for this celebration. And as you mentioned, you lost your primetime guy in Jason Giambi, an MVP, and we know what he meant to this franchise. Little did we know in spring training at that point that Miguel Tejada was about to become a national primetime guy and be an MVP. And he hasn't been back since. I think I really hope we get to see him and he shows up because he deserves his due as an Oakland athletic. And I'm sure you agree. Oh, well, I mean, it was, it was funny. I got a, I got a message from uh, Maggie not too long. It was a couple of months. He, he sent me a note and, uh, and I had heard from him in years. So it was nice to communicate with him. Cause like, like everybody, every fan, what you saw in the field with Miguel, the personality was exactly the guy that was in the clubhouse. It, he just was, just such a good guy, a tremendous talent too. Uh, really, a tremendous talent, and so I'm I'm going to be looking forward to seeing him as well. And it was good to see that he's coming out. And I know Hattie uh, will be out here. Hattie will be out here. Mulder, I saw. I think I saw Mark Mulder coming out here. I think Terrence Long is going to be just. It, it's been a. It's a really good turnout. And uh, again, I'm looking forward to seeing these guys too. I just saw Ramon. Actually, it was. Uh, uh, was in the clubhouse about a month ago, and and Elvis Andrus. I walked by Elvis Andrus, and he was on a Facetime at the time with Ramon Hernandez, who, like <laughs> Elvis, is from uh, Venezuela. And so I, he kind of he stopped me. He goes, "Hey, here's one of your friends," and and I spoke to Ramon, who, who I believe was is managing in Mexico, I believe right now uh, as a as a manager there. And it was good to talk to Ramon. I saw him here one time too, and it, it was funny, you, you know, because you want to talk about the O2 team. I remember Ramon, uh, just, I love Ramon, just such a mentally tough of all the players here. He was one of the most mentally tough kids we had here. I mean, he really, I, I, again, people, you know, forget he was a really good player, good offensive, uh, catcher, good defensive catcher. And it's funny. I, I sort of, one of my, one of the things I was always a proponent of and was, I never liked collisions at the plate with, uh, with catchers. I just thought it was just a play that didn't need to happen. I've always thought that. And uh, the Posey, you know, injuries, certainly I thought prompted rule changes that I think have been good to the game. That's my opinion. I don't buy into this, like a catcher sitting there waiting for somebody to clean his clock is a good idea. Yeah. The old Mike Sosha sitting there blocking the plate well before the ball ever got there. Yeah. I just don't. Yeah. I just don't. Again, I just think these are vulnerable positions. Now the catcher has gear on. 
and, you know, and sometimes, but still, I mean, just, I just don't think it's a great play. And I, I was always a proponent of the rule changes that we have now. I think it's been great. And since they've put them in, you don't see those kind of injury causing collisions. And so the reason I tell this story was uh, Ramon, who was a physically tough guy. And uh, I remember uh, we, we, we lost a game in Kansas city. It was a crazy game. And I can't remember the year. It might've been Oh one. I don't know if I think it was Oh two. Uh, and, it was like a 15 to 14. It was one of those crazy games. Mick, at the end of the day, uh, Ramon, there was a play at the plate. Kansas City scored. And, and there was this thought that maybe he could have blocked the plate to save the run and, and win. And, and, and I remember saying, I remember going to Ramon and going, I don't ever want you blocking the plate. I said, I'd rather lose one game than I lose you for two weeks. And uh, that was my belief. And, you know, because he certainly was tough enough. I don't think necessarily – you know, blocking the plate is necessarily a very pragmatic idea with one of the most important positions on the field. And that was the message I used to give when Kurt Suzuki came over. I, I told Kurt, because he was here when the rule change happened. I said, Kurt, I don't want you sacrificing your body for one run. I, I need you for the whole year. And I'm willing to give up that run or that game uh, for you to stay healthy. And I, and again, I think the game has evolved. But I, the reason I remember Ramon is that Ramon caught a little grief, you know, from, I think the general, not the general public, but just people like, why didn't, why didn't you throw your whole body there? And, and what, and, and it, to me, it just wasn't a good idea. And I remember saying, don't ever do that. I'm fine with you not blocking the plate and getting hurt for one run. It doesn't, I want you healthy. And because he was certainly tough enough. Uh, and, and again, my, my point of saying this is that not only was he physically tough, but he's mentally tough. He's the he's one player I remember I could literally go up to after a game. We used to have this little like wager with each a wager. It wasn't actually a wager. It was more like kind of a fun game where, you know, I, when he was a really good hitter was when he went to right field. So I, I told him every time he pulled a pulled the ball, I was gonna you know I was gonna get on him. And every time he went the other way, you know, he was gonna sort of win that uh, win that uh, event. And you could really sort of put this kind of pressure on him and he really responded too. And again, people, you know, it's been a long time since Ramon's been here, but he, he was a real, real important part of that team and a part of that group of players that was around for a couple of years. And you think about your pitching. The only way you're going to have these streaks is not only do you have to have the arms, but they got to get hot together and Hudson Boulder Zito. And then Corey Lytle. I mean, um, so, so sad about Corey, but, Remembering him, I mean, nobody was hotter in the game during that streak than Corey Lytle. Corey was unbelievable, and 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 it was so satisfying, I think, for the front office because uh, we we really Corey came over in the Johnny, uh, I think it was a Johnny Damon Mark Ellis deal. Yeah, uh, was that and and uh, we really wanted him, and one of the reasons I wanted him, I was a little bit obsessed with getting him. He was kind of a middle reliever, up and down guy with Tampa. But I recall, and I think it was 2000, we had a game in September when Tampa came in and we needed every single win, as you know, because we won it on the last day. And Tampa was a team at that time we should have beaten. And he, I think he came in, it was in Oakland, the game was in Oakland, and he shut us out. And I, and I never forgot that game. And it was like that from that moment on, I was kind of obsessed with getting a guy who seemed to be very underrated. And we were able to include him. In fact, he was the guy that we were insisting on to complete the Damon uh, Ben Grieved uh, deal, uh, which was, I think, it was after 01. Uh, yeah, was that, no, it was after 2000. I'm sorry. And uh, and so to see him sort of blossom 
the way he did as a starter with us when that was always the plan was to put him in the rotation uh was really satisfying to everybody because he when he got on a roll he was really good uh you know good running kind of a good running fastball sinker a really good split finger and really again about Corey, he had this sort of self-confidence about him i mean he he was afraid of no one when it came to playing the game of baseball and he uh he was really when he got on a roll, he was tough and, and he was, as you said, he was critical in that streak. That's why the streak happened. We were able to just throw out a starter out there every game, you know, beyond our offense and defense. It just that starter could shut you down. And that's a pretty powerful thing in this game. Yeah, and you, you had to replace, as you mentioned, Isringhausen moves on. You got Billy Koch, and then uh we were talking with Ken Korak about Ken Korak about it the other day. It's like he threw every game. Yeah, and Billy and Billy also had this sort of like energy to him, which really worked well with our team too in the crowd. Uh, you know, Billy was kind of a high energy guy on and off the field, and and it, and it worked really really well here. And and as I sort of kid, even now, uh, you know, when we uh, when we brought Billy in, I mean, we we gave up a pretty good young player at the time. Uh, it was uh, Hinsky, I think, was went over that deal, and I think Eric ended up being rookie of the year. So thank goodness Billy did have the year. And then at the end of that year, I think we flipped Billy for uh, Keith Folk, uh, and and Keith came over and had a, a couple of good runs for us uh, as as the uh, as the closer. Yeah, pitching it's amazing. I mean, I, I, yeah, I know you can build for it and draft it. And today, now with Tommy John surgery, I know you've said in the past if someone could figure out how to prevent Tommy John surgery, they'd be a billionaire. But what you had with health and stability there in the rotation is just something you pray for as a general manager. Yeah, and it helped that we were young. You know, uh, it was a young team that stayed healthy. And if you look at, if you look at that team, the uh, not only just the O two team, but also the O one team. You know, they were you know really starting to hit their prime when they were with us, which was why it was so much fun and why we were so good. But if you look at how long the careers of a lot of those guys went after that, it's really a testament how, to how much talent was actually there. I mean, those guys went on to play a long time. You know, Miggy in, in Baltimore, Huddy in Atlanta. You know, Jason played for a long time, as we know. And uh, it was a it was a team that, that had staying power beyond, you know, the, uh, the O2 season as well. Even Hattie went on a few uh, number of years after that of Ramon again these guys kept going on and which is always the thing you know if you have any sort of regrets I say regrets but or you know things you could wish for is when you imagine you know you talk about how different I was imagine you know my first year was 98 as the gym and then all of a sudden 90 1999 and 2000 we start to create this team and imagine in a you know in a world where you could have kept those guys their entire career uh, I mean, for the next decade, you know, you, you, we might be having this conversation, you know, every year with that group, you know, on what they did. That's that's the thing that's disappointing. That's why I've always said was, you know, the tough thing about uh, the last 25 years or so is creating something and not really being able to sort of retain it for uh, a number of years to, to really see how good it can be. You know, we've you know, we've constantly had to turn over a bit. And, and as you know, the, a that's a challenge, but you also don't get get to see uh, potentially what could be some great years ahead. How are you, Zach Jackson? How are you doing? doing so how are you doing? Doing good. Yeah, like I said, glad to be back. Have you ever been – do you even know what this is? 
The Ace Cast? No, the Treehouse. This is my first time. Olivia was explaining it to me on the way up here. No, I I mean, I can see the advertising sign uh, from the field. But other than that, I've never been up here. So. so this, this, so when they built this, th this hole was built for the Raiders, right? Okay. And this was just a generic bar that was for football games. That, you know, every once in a while they opened up for A's games. The A's took it, and we turned it into a treehouse, and it's kind of been the party place for families and whatever parties and happy hour. I knew it. Like, you guys have no idea what goes on up here. I was going to say, outside the locker room in the actual field, I, uh, I don't think we experiment too much with getting around the stadium. So it's cool to see. Yeah, like I said, I've never seen it. Yeah, it's a uh, it, it's been a very unique place. And that's why I wish you guys, like, when when Chris Davis signed his contract extension, we got all the players up here. Got yeah. added, like a, that's what Olivia was just telling me about. Like, one of the first big events up here for the players was actually getting everybody up here to see him sign. Yeah. So. So right now, how you feeling? Feeling good. Yeah, like I said, got uh, I guess about six weeks left. So we're, you know, like I said, hanging on, just getting a lot. Of, obviously, a lot of young guys, you know, some experience up here, kind of seeing how everybody works out. But yeah, like I said, it's it's a long season for the first time for a lot of us young guys. So we're just kind of learning how to manage our bodies at this point, and uh, you know, get to the finish line. You know, most people don't think about that, but here you're talking about a hundred and sixty-two games where. You're having to manage that many games with all the flights, hotels, and all that different stuff, throw more innings than ever before, throw more pitches than ever before, and I, especially for you in high-leverage situations like never before. Yeah, it's definitely something, uh, you know, obviously from my perspective, you wouldn't want to be throwing in any other situation, so it's been yeah. really nice. But, yeah, obviously the increase in appearances uh, definitely didn't help with COVID year, not playing at all that year for, you know, guys like me. Um, last year I had a shortened season with an injury. So, you know, it's definitely uh, trying to learn how to manage my body. And, you know, you don't think about, like, the jump in intensity, you know, from even if you're closing games out, double-A, triple-A, it's not the same. You could you could throw, a say, a mop-up inning at this level, and it's, you know, significantly more intense. You definitely feel it a lot more the next day than you do at that minor league level. So that's definitely the biggest adjustment. Tell us what it's like inside you, those final three outs, out there on the mound. It's the finality of the game. You're the Grim Reaper. You've come in, and it, this is it. What is that like, and what's it like inside? That's what you dream of. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, especially – coming up as a reliever so I've kind of known my role for so long that it's just kind of coming in knowing that man if you get to close out a big league game it doesn't get bigger than that like that's you know regardless of the situation getting those last three outs it's never easy always seems to be the hardest three outs of the game to get um, but yeah like I said especially as, as a rookie getting a few of those opportunities it's been huge you know for the experience factor I know a lot of us have gotten you know the opportunity to get those last three out this year uh, so I think for all of us it's just been a big learning experience and you know really learn how to handle that pressure and try to thrive in it. Well, well, you know, I think about your season, you've had quite a few different roles. How does that work for you when you go down? Do you always know you're going to close? Could it be a situation? I could come in the seventh. I could come in the eighth. What, it, what's the game plan mostly for you? Yeah, I mean, usually the way it's gone this year is Acevedo's been great at being our guy, kind of the first guy out of the pen. Um, you know, say a starter gets in trouble in that, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh inning, we know that he's usually going to be the guy to get out of that. He's been great in that role. Um, so usually he'll be that first righty up. We get a guy, you know, especially what Cole's been able to do lately where he's getting us into, you know, seventh, eighth inning of ball games. Um, we know if we're trying to, you know, say switch hitters or obviously mainly righties that are facing him, you know, get a righty like me in there. 
So a lot of times it's just kind of knowing the situation of, you know, if lefties or righties are coming up and then, you know, whether it be Puck coming at the end of the game, uh, if there's lefties coming up, Sam Mole, uh, and then, you know, Danny obviously being back now, uh, being able to close that game has been, has been really nice for us just knowing we have another guy at the back of that bullpen that knows what he's doing. Well, how about this? I, keep, I got a scorebook, and I keep score every game, and I don't have it with me here in the treehouse. But if I did, I would open it for you, and we'd flip through all the pages, and you see Acevedo, 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 Acevedo. <laughs> and it's like every single time you look down, he's up again. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. It's like it is amazing how many times he's thrown this year. I mean, do you guys sit back and go, wow. It is uh, It is something that is heavily discussed down at bullpen, that, you know, j- just how well he's done, you know, being, again, another guy at this level for the first time that kind of workload and just being able to come in every day, know what kind of work he needs to get in before the game to go out there and give his best stuff. And he's done incredible at this year. You know, it's, it's fun to see him work. And I know the starters have a lot of faith in him coming in, especially if, you know, they're coming out of the game with their guys on base that, you know, he's done extremely well this year at, at succeeding in that role. Well, and if you're going to pitch that much, you just have to realize that there are going to be days where you don't feel great. There's going to be, be, be days where you don't have your best stuff. But it doesn't matter. You need to come in and get out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's I think that's one of the bigger things at this level. You know, usually coming up in the minor leagues, especially if you go more than one inning or, you know, say back-to-back days, there is no chance in the world that you're pitching that day. And up here, it's, you know, you're available every day, and it's going in and, you know, learning how to pitch it some days at 80 85%. Seeing, you know, however you have to pitch that day to get guys out, and that's what you need to learn how to do in those situations. And like I said, just for a lot of us young guys, that's been one of the bigger things is learn how to pitch on shorter rest when you're tired out there. And, um, you know, I think that's been a great learning experience. How much do you anticipate when you're down in the bullpen while watching the game going, ah, phone might be ringing, get that <laughs> – you get the exercise band going. You might start stretching out. How much do you anticipate? Yeah, like I said, it's, it's been easier down the road just because you kind of know the roles that you're falling into. Uh, earlier in the season, it was honestly a lot more stressful because all of us are trying to figure out what roles we're going to be up here. You know, Cots has no idea what we're capable of. Um, Emo, same thing. It's just kind of figuring out, giving us chances and different opportunities and uh, kind of seeing what we can do with it. So as of late, you know, it's been easier just because we really know what situations we're coming in. But it's been a uh, – Again, just another learning experience and kind of, you know, handling that anxiety and making it as uh, quick as you can, just knowing what situations you're going to be coming into. All right, I'm getting the wrap-up sign because obviously oh, okay. it's, it's a different deal. Yeah. Uh, normally we're on the field. He, he'd be out earlier. We could talk more. How fired up are you? College football, it's right around the corner. Man, got that. Uh, the one I'm excited for, is it, is it in Ireland, that Northwestern Nebraska game? Yeah, I, that's the one I'm looking forward to. It's I'm sure it's super early in the morning. Uh tomorrow but that's what i'm excited for uh obviously a different environment but i'm kind of excited to see if nebraska is you know going to come back eventually if it's just going to be another year of disappointment so yeah i'm just excited to have something on how about the hogs how are your hogs gonna be yeah we got cincinnati week one so i think if we can get through that test uh I think we got A&M week four and then Bama week five. So those are going to be the, the big three that, you know, we're, we're looking forward to. I think it's going to be a good year for us. A lot of people go, God, you guys talk a lot of college football. Our <laughs> buddy Josh Donaldson, you remember, played here for years. Yeah, absolutely. For, Josh used to call up my show, my talk show years ago, to talk college football. He's an Auburn guy. I knew he was an Auburn guy. He's yeah. an Auburn guy. So he, we were talking to yeah, He came over yesterday was on the show. He was talking Auburn going, you know, you start looking at the SEC with Oklahoma and Texas coming in, it's like 
You guys got to, like, redo this SEC, it's right? I mean, it's, it's getting so big, too. It's like eventually it feels like there's going to be, like, three conferences in college <laughs> football. And it's just going to be everybody else is just kind of out. So, yeah, I'll be curious to see how it shakes out the next few years. But I'm, I'm super excited, yeah. All right, I know this was limited time. Next time we get college football will have started, we'll truly break it down, down on the field. We have more time. We always love having you on. We appreciate it. You're doing a great job this year. It's been a lot of fun to watch. So, I really appreciate it. Appreciate you having me on. The Eno Sarah Show, a debut next right here on A's Cast Live. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry. Also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. The Coliseum has gone by many names, but none better than The Last Dive Bar. Hi, everyone. Ken Korak here, and my friends at Last Dive Bar are helping us celebrate our longtime home. Last Dive Bar has the most unique merchandise for all Oakland baseball fans. T-shirts, sweatshirts, the Ray Fossey line, and my personal favorite, the lights have taken full effect. Visit their website at lastdivebar.com or follow them on social media at Last Dive Bar. All proceeds are invested back into the A's Community Fund and their affiliated charities. Go to lastdivebar.com. That's Last Dive Bar. Streaming from the East Bay, A's Cast Live continues with Chris Townsend. We're here in the treehouse, and of course, it is happy hour time. Come by and see us if you're listening, watching. Come in and uh, partake. We got great drink specials, bingos going on. It's a party here in the treehouse. This is a special moment in A's Cast Live history, and of course for A's Cast, as we have now inked up a national columnist from The Athletic, and we want you to, are we ready to launch this? Go. The Eno Sarah Show is sponsored by Fieldwork Brewing Company. With eight taproom locations in Northern California, Fieldwork brings you fresh craft beer direct from the source. Fieldwork will also ship beer direct to your door if you live in California. Visit fieldworkbrewing.com. Thank you, Fieldwork Brewing. We That's can't it. tell you how much we appreciate you bringing us Eno Saris for the Eno Saris show. As if you've watched MLB Network, you read on The Athletic, his work you is. Watch Ace you watch yeah. Ace Cast. It's <laughs> second to none. And what's awesome about this partnership beer and you every week i know it's great i mean and i wouldn't ask i couldn't ask for a better sponsor i mean i one thing i love about Fieldwork, and you, we talk about this all the time you're talking to me about like what beer is right for the season right yeah one thing i really love about Fieldwork is they're really good across the styles like they're not just a oh a hazy or this they have good stouts they've got sours they've got everything so you know that's why i'm super happy to to, to partner up with them let's go right there and the one thing that like you just said for a lot of people, you got to mix it up, right? You get There's stuff you do in the summer, or you do the fall, or you do in the winter. And, it, and if your brewery doesn't keep up with the Joneses, you really fall behind. And as Fieldwork, we just told you, they're going to get you your beer. If you can't go to one of their yeah, tap rooms, yeah. they'll bring it to your door. I met their brewer, Alex Tweet, uh, I think 12 years ago in San Diego. And we've been friends ever since. And uh, he's an amazing, amazing brewer, so... No matter what he does, he's golden. 
And we will be doing an A's Cast Live from their brewery. We're really thankful for this partnership. And we're thankful to have you because, you know, there's so many different things that you do. You're just not, you're, you just don't come on and give us just traditional baseball stuff. We learned about what really humidity is with you. No. I mean, there, there's a lot <laughs> I of different. I learned a lot, too. <laughs> humidors. We, we learned about so many different things. Uh, that you're working on, and we talk about the athletic too. It's also, you know, bringing in the partnership with the athletic. Who we've talked about the journalism is second to none. Yeah, yeah. I had a had a crazy piece today. Did you did you have a chance to look at that? We've been we've been. I have not. I've been doing stuff all day well, long. Well, check this out. It's a COVID piece. Yes, baseball players returning from COVID. Hitters returning from COVID. Sixty. They lose sixty points of OPS in their first two weeks back from COVID. Pitchers coming back from COVID, their ERA is 30 points higher in the two weeks when they come back from COVID. Their fastballs are more than a half mile an hour slower, and the hitters lose more than a half mile of exit velocity. Like, hitters and pitchers definitely lose athleticism in just the five days that sometimes they're out. And if it's 10 days, it's even worse. First thing I'm thinking about is when you have the virus, how your immune system is in such overdrive fighting the virus that it makes you so weak because everything it has to do to fight the virus and that we, just the way our sports work, and I'm sure if probably if we, if we looked at football, at basketball and hockey, we'd probably find something very similar because we want to rush our guys back, right? We don't want to see, hey, take two weeks, Get your strength back, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the thing. We need to win these games. Yeah, yeah. Like, you need to get back. You're in the lineup here and now. And especially, like, when when we first started going through this in our shortened 2020 season, you were gone for two weeks, yeah, right? Yeah. You had to be out for 14. Now it can be five days. Jordan Alvarez seemed like it's, – it's like I saw it on MLB Network that he tested positive. It seemed like three days later he was in the lineup. Because if you test negative, you can get back in there. But the problem is – and this is – I was talking to for the story. I talked to Chad Pinder. I talked to Jed Lowry. I talked to Mike Yastrzemski, Brandon Belt. So I talked to a lot of local guys about this, and they all said that they were tired, even after they got back in the games, that they had extra fatigue for an extra two weeks, that they were just tired going up and down stairs, that one player said he took – uh, pre-game naps, and he'd never done that before. So he just started started needing naps before games. So you know they're they're not the, who they are. The, and one thing that was really interesting to me, for me to researching this piece was that I talked to experts in like sort of trainers, like yeah. the high level, high performance they're, they're called now. Um, that I talked to high performance experts, and they said that there are adaptations that your body makes. There are physical adaptations that your body makes that you lose in three to eight days. So you're talking about the, the fastest speed that you can run, your max speed, like in terms of running. You lose that in three to eight days if you don't get to max speed. Like that's one of the first things you lose is running speed, actually. I didn't think that was true, but it's your max speed. You lose that. That explains everything about me now. <laughs> I haven't been to max speed in like 30 years. That explains everything. Got to get back up there. <laughs> and then the other one actually um, was it's called the creatine phosphate system. That's a lot of gobbledygook. What it is is the fast twitch. Yeah. So the fast twitch, the, and these are adaptations that your body makes when you are a high-level pro la- athlete. They have at, their bodies have adapted to do things that we can't do. In terms of like having 80 mile an hour bat speed, we would have to do all sorts of training. And if we took five days off in the middle of that training, we would actually lose steps in that training. 
And uh, that's, I, was, I was amazed that just three to eight days. And that's what's different about COVID versus everything else. Because if you hurt your wrist, you can still run. Yes. You can still lift other body parts. Ride a bike. You can ride a bike. The stationary bike. You COVID can is, hey, we're going to shut everything down for five days, you know, or four days. Or whatever Stay at home, is, isolate. You know. And it all started because I was trying to train for the half marathon, and I, I had COVID, and I, I was like, I have to run this half marathon in five weeks. So on day five of COVID, I decided I'm going to go out there and run. And the type of running I was doing, I was, tr- I was checking my heart rate, and I was trying to run to a certain heart rate. And that first day back, the heart rate was up like 20% over what I would normally was. And I couldn't run. I was super tired, and my pace was off. So I just saw how hard it was to get back on, on, on track. And was that scary at all? Um, a little bit. Uh, it was good that the second run was better. And, like, yeah. about a week, week and a half, you know, two weeks, I was back, I was back to normal. But... Um, you know, that, uh, that gave me an end to talk to these athletes. I was like, this is what it was like for me. What was it like for you? Um, and we just had a lot of interesting discussions. You know, Jed was particularly uh, impressive in this uh, piece because Jed got it pre-vaccine uh, in 2020 when he was with the Mets. And so in that case, he was out for three months, and he said he couldn't, he couldn't get on a bike for three months. So he had that experience. And then he caught it again <laughs> after the vaccine, and he was, he was cool. It was like three days of light stuff, but then two weeks of still being tired. So let's take it to a team standpoint. We're about winning baseball games. COVID is not going away, and it's staying with us for we don't know how long. We thought we, thought we wouldn't be having these conversations anymore. We're still having these conversations. Mm. So I'm not saying we're not going to deal with this next season. So should we as a sport – Really think about the if you get COVID, especially if you have the fever and you have the symptoms, and it's not good for me to try and win a baseball game with you. Like, yeah. like you're not helping me if if you if you're you know, tired. I, if you have to take a nap, I know <laughs> it's that dumb saying you'll hear people say. If I can only get sixty percent out of this guy, no. Yeah. I mean. Is that really a, all right, he's got COVID. We really got to think about him at least for not a week being a part of this thing. And I, I think the best way to do it is I'm a data guy. I'm a numbers guy, right? Yeah. I talked to one team that said, no, we have cardio and cardiac. We have, like, heart baseline. We have baselines on everybody, and we want them to get back to those baselines before we put them on the field. So that that's how you deal with how everyone gets it differently, right? So if, if we know what your your resting heart rate is, then we can throw you back on the field if you can get back to that resting heart rate as soon as you get back to that. If we know what your what your max speed is, if you can get back to that max speed, then we can send you back out there. So there's certain benchmarks you can have. But the flip side of it is think about you're a team that's going to the playoffs, and you don't want them to get it at all, especially if they're going to be reduced maybe in the playoffs, right? So I think – Something that you should be thinking about, and this is difficult because you feel like, hey, we're, we're business is open. Let's let's we can have fun again. You might want to talk to your team about, hey, do we want to have voluntary kind of restrictions on our social bubble. lives? Do we want to kind of like chill out on the socializing in the last two weeks of September at least, so that nobody, you know, not, like Garrett Cole doesn't get, you know, and like then he's out, you know. So uh, or and if he, even if he comes back after five days, he's not as good because he's tired. So, you know, there's, that's, I mean, that's, I know, that's real. I know for certain 
that teams are talking about this. I know for certain that they're talking about this, talking about what they want to do, the managers think about it, and they're going to talk to their players at some point. Well, because what you're saying is if you get COVID, there's a chance you're not you for at least two weeks. And that's the playoffs. And we don't have that much time. Yeah. Is it? Is it? What is our COVID list right now? If we have a player go on COVID, we're able to bring a player up and replace him. That's what I'm just trying to think. Like a COVID list still is going to need to be here for a while now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the I bubble seems the, – the bubble seems smart for the playoff teams. Now, I mean, doesn't mean you still can't get it. I mean, the odds of you getting it from another player being outside is slim. But, yeah, when you start talking about wife – your kids are going to school. I mean, this is. I mean, it's something to think about. I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't have any answers. And really, the the the, the real thrust of the piece for me was just that um, everyone's coming back at a different pace. Everyone gets affected by it differently. And you know, to me, the piece. If there was a point to the piece, it was like have some sympathy for your brother. You know what I mean? Have some sympathy for your sister. Like, have some sympathy for each other as we come back off of this because some people are going to get long COVID. Some people are going to get it really bad. Some people are going to laugh it off and say it was nothing. But, you know, have some sympathy for the other people because everyone's sort of coming through it at a different pace. Yeah, and as, you know, it w- they tried to start throwing at us that this was a virus of the unvaccinated and then all the vaccinated and people that had it already are getting it again. Yeah. So it's like it's changed so many times and it's not ending anytime soon. So something good, you know, I can't wait to read it because obviously this truly affects now. God, you think about it, can you imagine two or three of your top players get it right for the playoffs. We normally would say, oh, in five days they're back. But you're saying, no, that's not it. They may be back. an hour less fastball. But (laughs) they're not back. You're working on a piece about fly balls. Yeah, uh, I think it's really interesting because uh, the numbers say that if you throw 50% fly balls, if you you hit 50% fly balls, right, as a hitter, you can still be very productive. In fact, you can be just as productive as someone who hits fewer fly balls because – you're, you're hitting a lot of homers, right? But what happens is your batting average is, is crap. You know, guys who hit 50% fly balls and up usually hit 210, you know, because they're hitting a lot of pop-ups, they're hitting a lot of fly-outs, and a lot of homers, right? I, I've been talking to hitters that hit 50% fly balls, and they're aware of that, and they don't like it. And a lot of them, I don't like they it. think it's too much. So the question is, is there, is there too many fly balls? The numbers say, not really. You get a lot of homers, it's, you're still very productive. But the hitters say, no, I, I, you know, I talked to Seth Brown, who last year hit 50% fly balls, and he said, that's what was asked of me. I was a part-time player. When they put me in, I was like, I need to make an impact right now. I'm going to hit a homer. So everything was going to be in the air. Yeah. But now that I'm an everyday player, they're asking different things of me where, you know, sometimes I need to move the guy over. Sometimes I need to get on base. Sometimes I need to cover the plate. Sometimes, I, you know. And so he said it's actually been more of a conscious decision this, decision this year to be able to cover more of the plate, to be able to hit, uh, to hit, hit a little bit better average, a little bit more on base, uh, and not hit as many fly balls. And so you've seen his fly ball rate go down, his on-base percentage go up, his strikeouts go down. So there, that, there is all that relationship where all these things happen that way. And, you know, it could be better for the game if more people were not hitting 50% fly balls. I think. Here's a player. I don't know what his fly ball rate is. Uh-huh. But any idea Giancarlo Stanton? 
He's actually not. He's he's a he's a kind of a lot of his are lasers. Okay. Well, his lasers. Uh, I was looking at his numbers. So he's got 24 home runs and only six doubles. <laughs> and I started saying to myself, okay, ah, great. He went back home to L.A., won the All-Star Game MVP. Yeah. But here's a guy that we act like a big star, doesn't play defense, mm. DH. He's got 24 jacks. You look at his RBIs. Less than three, 300 on base, I think. You're talking about a lot of solo home runs. Very few extra base hits. Now the OPS will be high, but I'm like, how really productive is this guy? Are, is, is hitting Corey Seager down in Texas? Not great defensively. A lot of solo bombs. Is that really a great player? Well, I think I think the game. I think some in some ways the game is going away from that a little bit. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton represents the first wave of Statcast where we were like, hey, he hits the ball really hard. And Stanton has, well, O'Neal Cruz just hit the, the hardest the hit hardest of all ever, time. Yeah. But it, numbers 2 through 25 are Giancarlo Stanton. <laughs> so he's hit the hardest balls ever. And, you know, in uh, in the StatCast era, the first era of it was, let's get all the guys who hit the ball hard. Right? And that was a big thing for, for the, the Yankees, really. Got a lot of big guys who throw the ball hard, spin the ball hard. You know, a lot of high spin rates and a lot of uh, high exit velocities. I think we're moving away from that a little bit in when we realize that strikeout rate is actually super important in the postseason. It becomes more important in the postseason than the regular season even. The, the ability to put a lottery ticket in play. The ability to make contact off a, off a high velo pitcher. To make contact off a really good stud ace. And contact. Contact matters. Not strikeout. Contact. Yeah, contact. So as as people saw what the Astros were doing, because the Astros have been kind of out in front of a lot of these trends, they saw the Astros and the Cubs improve their strikeout rate year over year more than any other team in baseball those years, and they won, the, won it all. Those years they won it all, they improved their strikeout rate more than any other team in baseball. And so other teams, I think, are starting to see contact matters, strikeout rate matters. I don't want a guy who strikes out 30% of the time, hits 50% fly balls, hits me 25 jacks, has a 280 on base percentage. I'm not sure that's exactly what I want. Because in a seven-game series, everything changes. And wouldn't you say that's why the Yankees have been vulnerable? They haven't been to the World Series since 2009. During 162, we've talked about this with the A's, how they play. Works for 162. How does this work in, in a small series? I've got another name for you, the Tampa es Bay Rays. Especially, okay, so teams that... I look at the Yankees, so much of their offensive production comes from the home run. Well, what happens if they don't hit home runs? It, that's a, there's a complicated truth, uh, which is teams that score a lot of runs from their home runs do fine in the postseason. That, that, that part is okay. It's also true that contact matters more. <laughs> so really what you want to do is hit a lot of home runs and make contact. <laughs> That should be easy, right? No, but but that's what I mean. That's what the Astros do. They hit a lot of home runs. They make a lot of contact. You know, that's correct. That's they make, what they you don't want. strike out. That's right. That's what you want to do is not strike out. The, the the antithesis of this is the Braves. They won it all last year. They strike out a lot. They chase balls. But you that does make you vulnerable in a in a in a five game series where your guys can all go cold. 
because that just happens to be that time of the year where, where they strike out a lot or if they don't match up well against those pitchers and they strike out a lot. And then you have feast or famine kind of idea. And that's what happens with strikeouts, your feast or famine. What's the problem with the Rays in the postseason? They strike out a lot. You just become out. easy outs. Yeah. And they, and they and you know, you, you'll see they, they have to win one nothing, 2 nothing, 2-1. Would you say that with technology, new trends have emerged and maybe sometimes teams, like certain businesses, jump too fast into an early trend and go all in, and it, then it hurts them? We have a fascinating uh, test case of this right today with the Yankees and the, and the A's because the Yankees are always way out in front on, on technology and data. And so they are all over these concepts that we've talked about on the show before. That's like seam-shifted wake. You know, like I said earlier, they had a lot of high spin rate guys early. They, they, they are really into data and tech, and that's great. The A's on this side can't necessarily afford all the same data and tech, aren't, aren't, aren't investing the same way in the player development. And so they've, uh, in fact, made a lot of trades with the Yankees, and they have targeted players that are being left behind in this age of things like my stuff plus metric, you know, all these like sort of advancements in data and tech. So when you get a guy like J.P. Sears and you get a guy like Cole Irvin and you get a guy like Paul Blackburn. Walter Chuck. I mean, Walter Chuck, I don't know. He has some strikeout. I don't know exactly how what his stuff is like. But I think in particular Sears, Blackburn, and Irvin strike me as guys who – they hide the ball okay. They have a lot of pitches. They all they all have th- at least three or four pitches, maybe five, you know, and they command it pretty well, and they're better than the sum of their parts. They're able to dance, you know. They're able to pitch, yeah. you know. And so the A's have been like, hey, if we can't out-stuff plus you and if we can't out-data and tech you, then maybe we're going to go, you know, backwards in a way. We're going to be like, hey, this is a pitcher. You know, our scouts say he's a pitcher. He's a guy who's been better than you'd expect. He's outperformed his stuff plus. You know, why not let's lean into that? And we're going to lean into the unknown a little bit here. We, we might not be able to quantify it as good as, as the Yankees can quantify their stuff plus, but we've got some interesting pitchers here and some guys who've made it work. That's what's going to be fascinating. It's just not everything you're going to do with us each week through the postseason, but really in the offseason, when you can really go in a deep dive and explain, okay, when you're reading my stuff, <laughs> this is what I mean. And right, really explain, like, I've come up with stuff. You have stuff plus. Yeah, location plus, pitching plus, yeah. I mean, we well, wait, it's on a beer can now. we got a stuff plus beer can. I'm going to get you some of that. Field work, right? Yeah, right now. <laughs> I can't mention the other one. No, no. just <laughs> full, full, the full tilt is it made the. the can stuff I please get here. my? Can I please get my? I will improve this. I just wanted to show you the capabilities of what we will have for you. Hit it. The Eno Sarah Show is sponsored by Fieldwork Brewing Company with eight taproom locations in Northern California. Fieldwork brings you fresh craft beer direct from the source. Fieldwork will also ship beer direct to your door if you live in California. Visit fieldworkbrewing.com. Sponsor of the Eno Sarah show. We're, and we're doing this all year. It's not just a, it's not during the just during the regular season. We're no, gonna, we're so gonna, we can we can break down winter meeting stuff, we can break down trades, we can do anything. Well and, and the great thing is too for field work, it's like holiday time, promote how this is a great gift. Because oh, yeah. I I've I've given something like this to yeah, my, my wife is listening, I'll take a box of field work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean you get on that like like you can buy like the Christmas gift where beer shows up every month. Yeah, beer of the month but. Right, isn't that nice? <laughs> Are you saying we're done the show's over? All right, all right, all right. 
What? Hey, we're promoting field work no. growing here for we guys. Got, we got we got next week. We got next, we got next week. week, and then we got hey, that. You know how much respect respect we we have for you and the work you do you is second too. to none. And yeah. now that you're officially a part of us every single week, field work brewing, fantastic. It's going to be a win-win. Yes. Thanks so much, guys. Coming up next, we'll have A's Total Access getting you ready for the Athletics and the Yankees on a little Friday night. Make sure you come to the come to the treehouse here for a little happy hour. Thank you, everybody, for watching and listening on A's Cast and A's Cast Live. Hey, A's fans, check out Longport Fish Company, an exciting new chef-driven seafood restaurant located in the Veranda Shopping Center in Concord. Longport features the highest quality lobsters, oysters, king salmon, flavorful chipino, and much, much more. It features a full bar of craft cocktails, local brews, and a curated wine list. Longport Fish Company is for all occasions, too. Date night, business meetings, catching an A's game at the bar, or bringing the whole family. Check us out at longportfc.com, on Yelp, and on all social media. The Coliseum has gone by many names, but none better than The Last Dive Bar. Hi, everyone. Ken Korak here, and my friends at Last Dive Bar are helping us celebrate our longtime home. Last Dive Bar has the most unique merchandise for all Oakland baseball fans. T-shirts, sweatshirts, the Ray Fossey line, and my personal favorite, the lights have taken full effect. Visit their website at lastdivebar.com or follow them on social media at Last Dive Bar. All proceeds are invested back into the A's Community Fund and their affiliated charities. Go to lastdivebar.com. That's Last Dive Bar. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.